0: Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. So right now I'm reading a biography of Eugene Peterson, probably one of the most important pastors of the last century. Now not the most dynamic and not the most popular, but everything he did was very intentional and he's had a great impact on many pastors. But he tells in his biography about his first um, Christian convert. He was in first grade and he was walking home from school and every day an older boy named Cecil Zachary would meet him on the road. Now Cecil Zachary was bigger, he was older. He said, what I remember is he wore that red flannel shirt, red and black, no matter how hot or how cold it was. But Cecil Zachary would beat him up a couple of times every week. And Eugene Peterson being raised in a Christian home said, I would go home and quote verses about turning the other cheek and praying for those who persecute you. But one day he'd finally had enough and Cecil Zachary was picking on him and Eugene Peterson said, to my surprise and to his, I grabbed Cecil Zachary and I put him on the ground and I pinned him there. It surprised us both that I was stronger than he was. He said, and I took my fist and I punched him in the face and blood spurted from his nose and landed on the snow. And he said, say, uncle. No, he hit him again. And Eugene Peterson said, that's when my Christian training reasserted itself. Instead of saying, say, uncle, he said, say I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Cecil Zachary said, no, so I hit him again. Say, Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. No, hit him again. Finally, on the third time, Cecil Zachary said, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And Eugene Peterson said, thus was my first Christian convert. Now, as a coda to this story, in 2006, Eugene Peterson returned back to that area to preach in an Episcopal church. And when he did, he learned that Cecil Zachary had lived in that area all the way through his life had died just six months earlier, and had died in a relationship with the Lord, and Eugene Peterson said, I felt vindicated in my evangelistic methods. So that's not the way we should work as followers of Jesus. We can't pound Jesus into somebody, or maybe that's exactly the way that it works. So we're in this teaching series on anxiety, and by the way, we're drawing to the end of this. We're going to finish up next week uh, by looking at Jesus and kind of ending our teaching, talking less about anxiety and more about peace. But think about who we've talked about so far. We've talked about Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah and Jonah and Job. And what they all have in common is they are in the Older Testament. Now we go to the New Testament and we meet Paul. And Paul has an advantage that all those other people didn't have. Paul had Christ, but Paul also had to deal with the Corinthians. This is a church that he started in the town of Corinth. Really the best way I can describe Corinth is just say it was, it was Vegas, baby. It was crowded. You know, Vegas has more hotel rooms than any other city in the world. And Vegas is also very corrupt. More than one medical professional has been fired in Vegas for betting on when patients would actually die. It's crowded and corrupt. That's what we know about Vegas. That's exactly what Corinth was like. So much so that on the Corinthian Acropolis, there would be prostitutes that would work down here in the city, and, and as they would walk around showing off their bodies, they would have shoes that would leave the imprint of words in the dust, and that would just be the words, follow me, follow me, follow me, all the way up to the Acropolis to indulge in adultery. So that was the city of Corinth the church of Corinth was beginning to look a whole lot like the city. In fact, I think one of the most beautiful passages in Paul's Corinthian correspondence, he says, I want you to look back on the Israelites through the desert. He says, they were baptized through the sea and in the cloud. What does he mean by that? remember the Israelites came out of Egypt going through the sea, and then the cloud led them on the path they were supposed to go in a way. We come into Christ by baptism, we're led by the Spirit. He said, but remember what caused their undoing, idolatry, sexual immorality, and grumbling. And the Corinthian church had to deal with the question that I think the church in every age has to wrestle with this same thing. Will we look more like culture, or will we become like Christ, especially when it comes to issues of idolatry, oh, so many things that we worship. Sexual immorality, we know the challenges there, and grumbling, living a life of complaining. So Paul has a very complicated relationship with this church at Corinth, and in his second letter he writes something very revealing about the anxiety in his own life. In fact, the anxiety that the Corinthian church itself had caused him. So here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8, and we're going to kind of just walk through this passage. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles that we experienced in the province of Asia. So what were the problems in the province of of Asia. This probably refers to the time when Paul was in Ephesus. He was in Ephesus, and up to that time, his ministry was all up and to the right. Everything he touched turned to gold until Ephesus. In Ephesus, there were riots. In Ephesus, there was arrest. And Paul is thrown into a prison. And about the same time, Paul gets a letter from the church at Corinth, whom He had helped start this church, and he had supported these friends, and now they were sending him a letter to say, you know, we've had some other teachers come along, and Paul, we just don't like you that much anymore. So you can see this all piling on top of Paul, not only the external persecution, but the internal rejection from other Christians. And he says this, I don't want you to be uninformed about all the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. I wish people who share that myth that God will never give you more than what you can handle, I wish they would read this verse right here. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. You might say, well, the Bible does say somewhere that God will never give you more than you can handle. No, that's not what the Bible says. First Corinthians 10, 13 says that God will never tempt you beyond what you're able. In other words, in every temptation you'll never be in a position where you say, I had no choice but to give in. God will always give you a way out. That's in terms of temptation. Paul here is talking about trials and troubles. We had more far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of even life itself. So when we get into a really difficult time, of trouble and trial. I've prayed with a lot of Christians over the years they say let's just I just want all these problems to go away. You know the phrase abracadabra right? It actually traces back into the ancient world into Aramaic the Aramaic language. Avracadavra, two words, it actually means I make it so by my words that we would like to just with our words say problems go away. But it could be those times we're tempted to pray abracadabra, that we need to lean into the anxieties, lean into those times where I've got more than I can handle, more than my ability to endure because maybe, just maybe, God is trying to pound something into us, trying to pound something in that it goes down really deep into who we are and we never lose this lesson, we never lose sight of this truth. So indeed, this is what Paul says in verse 9, indeed we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened so that we would not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. I want to read this same passage from another translation. This is N.T. Wright's translation of the New Testament called the Kingdom New Testament. Uh, N.T. Wright for me is one of the most important scholars of our era. Here's the same passage, I'm gonna read it as a whole in his translation because I like the wording here. You see, my dear family, I don't wanna keep you in the dark about the suffering we went through in Asia. The load we had to carry was far too heavy for us. It got to the point that we gave up on life itself. Yes, deep inside, we received the sentence of death. This was to stop us from relying on ourselves and to make us rely on God who raises the dead. Let me read that last section again. This was to stop us. Why would God take you to a point of anxiety that you have more than what you can handle? This was to stop us from relying on ourselves and rely on God who raises the dead. If you ever get to the point that life is throwing at you more than what you can handle, and maybe you're there right now today, it could be that God is trying to wake you up to the fact or wake you up to the question who are you relying in who are you relying on is it yourself or on the Lord and maybe lessons like that can only be pounded into us in fact uh, Charles Spurgeon agrees he says when God gives us more than what we can handle He's typically trying to teach us one of two things, either more about ourselves or more about Him. And I tend to believe that those both go hand in hand. Then when we've got more than what we can handle, then we have reached our limits. We know our limits, but we also begin to discover the limitlessness of who God really is. So here's what I want to do, I want to take this passage that that Paul says, you know, I've been in a place in my life where I had more than I could handle, and God was trying to pound something into me about who I was relying on. And there's a lot of passages we could go to as a jumping off point to say, okay, what did Paul learn about himself? What did Paul learn about God? But I've chosen two, only two. The first is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so if you're following along, you can just flip over a few pages and in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, um, Paul is talking here. Um, about what he's discovered about himself. He says this in chapter 4, verse 7, but we have these treasures in jars of clay. Okay, we'll get to the treasure here in just a moment, but Paul says, I've learned something about myself. I am a jar of clay. If we could travel back in time to the ancient world, imagine every piece of Tupperware you have in your house being a clay jar. All right, that was what was used in the day for storage and for eating and all those things. So there was no plastic ware, there was clay ware. Two things about jars of clay is they are very fragile and most likely they're going to break. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I was on an archaeological dig in Israel and we were taken into this subterranean cavern and we were digging out um, you know, archaeological artifacts and we came up with, I mean, I've I had enough clay to make a whole new jar, it was just broken clay. That's what Paul says I've learned about myself. I'm a fragile and broken individual, so are you. You know we have these high spiritual thoughts but go without food for a day, you'll learn how unspiritual you really are. We're also all broken. We're all broken mentally, we're all broken emotionally, we're all broken physically, we all have these weaknesses. Paul says I've learned I'm just like a clay jar but… Inside of me is great treasure. See what he's learning about himself and what he's learning about God? There's a great treasure inside of me. Oceanographers believe that there are three million shipwrecks on the bottom of the ocean. This goes all the way back from a 10,000-year-old canoe to a ship that sank in World War II. Ten, excuse me, three million shipwrecks. And they believe that there's enough treasure down there in those shipwrecks to equal about 60 billion dollars. By the way, there was a Turkish vessel discovered just a few years ago to haul up all the gems and all the the gold. It took 10 years and about 22,000 deep sea dives to pull up all this treasure. That treasure's down there in broken places. God uses broken people to hide away his best treasure. It's the treasure of the gospel. You say "Well, what is that treasure? Well if you look back just a few verses earlier in Second Corinthians 4, it says we have this treasure, Jesus is Lord and we are servants. That's the treasure. Sometimes we get that backwards. I don't believe in atheists. I believe there are atheists, atheists, that I am the God of my life. You know what? That's not a treasure. That's, that's terrible. Oh, if I'm the God of my life. The treasure is when I understand that Jesus is Lord, and I am not Lord, but what I am, I am to be a servant of God, and I'm to be a servant of other people. That's this treasure found in jars of clay. And then Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, and this is verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. I hope you see what happens here. That Paul looks back on that Second Corinthians 1. He said, we had more than what we can. Handle. I felt like we were going to be crushed. He said, but it turned out that wasn't the case after all not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus is and this treasure that he has put in our life. I've, I've taken the freedom to retranslate 2 Corinthians 4.8, which is for me one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament, one of the most beautiful verses, and I've translated it simply like this. We are pressed, but not depressed. We are at our wit's end, but we are not at our hope's end. We are at a loss, but we are not lost. We may be knocked down, but we are not down for the count. We keep on going. Sometimes life needs to beat it into us about who we really rely on, not ourselves, but on God. That's the gift of anxiety. So there's one more passage I want to go to. This one is very familiar in Philippians chapter 4. Again, it's the idea of, of through his anxiety, Paul learns something about himself, as Spurgeon says, and something about God. So here's what Philippians 4 says, do not be anxious about anything. Now, for those who use this verse, this is Philippians 4, 6, um, some people use this verse as a battering ram, you know, or as a stick to beat over your head, like you're worried, I'm worried about this, and they say, well, don't be anxious about anything. This verse is not meant to be a stick to beat over somebody's head because Paul has already admitted we were overwhelmed more than what we felt like we could handle. But how do you learn how not to be anxious? It's by going through anxiety. So don't beat somebody over the head with this verse. Give them a break because they're in process of learning this important lesson on how to do it. So do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation... Here's something I want you to discover about yourself. You can talk to God about anything going on in your life. I was having a conversation with one of uh, my fellow ministers here not too long ago, and we were talking about people coming into our office and saying the wildest things. And sometimes people tell us things, and I go, well, I didn't expect to hear that today when I woke up, you know. Very personal and very private things, and sometimes you, you're shocked, but you try to remain unshocked. God's not shocked by anything. Whatever the situation, you can talk to him about it by prayer and petition. Ask God for what you want. Now, if you're going through that time of anxiety, hey, I think it's natural, it's human to say, God, get me out of this. Maybe it's a braver prayer to say, not God, get me out of this, but God, what do you want me to get out of this? And it could be that he's trying to pound into you the fact that he wants you to rely more on him. But ask for what you want. Pray and make petitions. I think back to my kids as they were growing up, and there's a lot of different categories of asking, but but sometimes my kids asked for things that I knew I would never give them. You know, dad, I want a tattoo. No, not that I'm against tattoos, but probably what you tattoo on your body at 15 is not gonna be what you want at 30, right? So no matter how much they ask, the, the answer is always gonna be no. But there are some things I gave to my kids only because they asked. My daughter wanted a nose ring when she was 16. You know, that's not something I would have given her unless she asked. So we're taught here about the intimacy that we have with God, and about our relationship with Him in Christ, that instead of being all worked up in anxiety, we take those prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Have you ever thought about thanking God for all those prayers you prayed over the years that He didn't answer the way that you wanted Him to? Some of the things I prayed, I am so glad God said no, or I am so glad God said wait. So, what do we, what do we learn about Him? We learn that He's wiser than we are. By prayer and petition thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, and I would say the peace of God that doesn't make sense peace of God that isn't about the circumstances. That's, that's where we want to get that we get to a point that our, our circumstances are chaotic, but we are at peace because sometimes God quiets the storm, but sometimes God lets the storm rage and He quiets His child. A peace that doesn't make sense will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. I often do this just probably do this once a year, to stop and, and say, if God were to say three words to you today, He would just say the words, I've got you. I've got you. Maybe that's one of the lessons God is trying to pound into us when it comes to anxiety, about how to stop relying on ourselves and how to rely on God. So, um, you're not going to know this name, but I find little stories like this to be interesting. And by the way, this is a, an imperfect illustration I'm about to use, but Colin Cantwell died this last week. So he graduated from college. He went to work for Jet Propulsion Laboratories, but ended up working for George Lucas and designing so many of the things that we know from Star Wars. The uh, TIE fighter, he designed the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. Uh, He also designed the Death Star. Remember the Death Star? Uh, By the way, I I jumped over to confirm some of these facts. I jumped over to a website called Wookiepedia. Yeah, not Wikipedia. There's a Star Wars database called Wookiepedia. Can't believe this. But it confirmed this story that Colin Cantwell, as he was designing the plastic model of the Death Star, at the center, it was actually two pieces that he was going to put together. But at the center, at the equator, um, the plastic model kind of kind of folded in just a little bit. And he didn't want to recast this whole Death Star. So he just, he put it together and he recommended to George Lucas, he said, why don't we have there be a meridian trench that goes all the way around the Death Star, right? And George Lucas heard that and it became a part of the plot. You remember how Luke Skywalker would go down that trench and find that exhaust port. It was the one weakness of the Death Star. That mistake, that weakness became a major point in the plot. Now this is an imperfect metaphor, but think about this. We are weak. We are frail. We are jars of clay. God has put great treasure in us, and sometimes it's the weaknesses like anxiety that become a major plot. Point in our lives as we learn not to rely on ourselves and sometimes that just needs to be pounded into us but we learn to rely on God who raises the dead who can take life see it die and it becomes a better life we call it resurrection life a better life that could ever be imagined. So I want you to take that one word with you today, that word rely. And in fact, when I come across a word like that, I, I look it up and just to say, what, what is that, where does that word come from? Um, it, it's, if you could think about the word re-ligament, you know what a ligament is in your body. It ties muscle and bone together, a, a ligament. So rely is a re-ligament to hold fast to God, to rely not to hold fast, not to myself, but to rely on God. And the good news is that even when we don't hold fast to God, He still holds us fast. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who hear this today and maybe are dealing with anxiety, but maybe you are trying to pound something into us. We we are stubborn, sometimes we only learn the hard way that Jesus is Lord and we are not. That you are capable, we are not. That you are limitless, we are not. So help us to use anxiety as an opportunity for spiritual growth that we would rely less on I and rely more on you, our Lord and our God. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and may God grant you peace now and forever. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. And may God grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen.